0: Matthew chapter five. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter five. Um, I hope you've all benefited from your extra hour, extra hour sleep, or did you, like me, just go to bed a little bit later, thinking it's not really this time; it's actually that time, so you haven't benefited at all. Um, Matthew chapter five. So, yeah, as Richard said, we're going through a series on the Beatitudes at the moment. That's the the stuff right at the the start of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read it together. Okay. We're going to know this really well by the end of the series. Um, It's good to declare scripture out loud, so that's what we're going to do now, if you don't mind. So I wonder if we could stand. If you're able to stand, please do. And you can follow this in your Bible, or you can follow it on the screen behind me. Um, We're going to be reading from verse 3 to 10, which is the kind of the eight Beatitudes that we're focusing on in this series. So, with me, if if you would like. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you very much. Please take your seats. We're working our way through these one by one, but just before we zoom in again into the one we're looking at today, which is in verse 6, about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, let's just remind ourselves of the context here. If you remember a few weeks ago when I introduced the Beatitudes, I used Google Earth as a way of illustrating how we're to look at these Beatitudes, to, to look at the essential context that we need to bear in mind as we study them closely, as we, as we zoom in on each one. And so if you remember, the, the, the kind of the wide-angle view, the zoomed-out view, was of the significant place of these Beatitudes in the cosmic and eternal story of how God relates to mankind and how mankind relates to God how you know we have this big story from the beginning to the end of the Bible and going beyond that, and that's the story of which we are now a part, and how the Beatitudes are significant in that story, because it's really nothing less than the announcement of a new covenant that Jesus is doing here. It's a new covenant, a new way of God relating to man. So it's, it's very, very significant. Then we looked in the context, we kind of zoomed in a bit, looked at the context of Jesus' ministry of word and power. Word and Spirit. And Ron highlighted this again last week. How we must be people who hear and respond to the Word of God, but we can only do that in the power of the Spirit. If we think we can do any of this in our own strength, we'll just fall flat on our face. Because not one of these Beatitudes that we have here is a natural tendency for us. These are not natural tendencies. Then we looked at it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, how the Beatitudes come right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and how we can only do what we see in the Sermon on the Mount, if we are the person that is described here in the Beatitudes. And then we looked at the context of the Beatitudes themselves, what we've just read out together, and how you have to take them as a whole thing, a whole unit. You, you know, Even though we're looking at each individual Beatitude week by week, you can't ultimately separate them out, because one depends and relies on all the others, and all the others depend and rely upon the one. They are all linked together. They, they don't stand in isolation. So those are the sort of things, that, that's the context that we need to bear in mind as we zoom in again. We're going to zoom into verse 6, which says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who long for righteousness. What does your heart long for? What is it you really long for? What sort of things do you yearn for? I think for a lot of people, nostalgia is a very, very powerful thing. Nostalgia is a powerful force. Looking back to the past, looking back to childhood, to maybe what felt like a simpler time. Maybe lots of happy memories associated. And I get that that's not the case for everybody. But for example, the other day, uh, an old school friend of mine I was at primary school with, he posted some photos on Facebook of our old school. And I looked at these photos and it just that pang of, oh, I remember that place. I, and, and memories, and you start to kind of get lost within the memories, and, you, and it's very nostalgic. You have a, there's there's a, sort of a, a feeling of longing. Or it might be you see an old children's TV program that was a children's TV program when you were a child, and it's like, oh, I remember that. Or, or you hear a piece of music that just transports you right back to a particular time, and you kind of get lost in that world again. It can be a very powerful thing, a very powerful longing. Actually, the word nostalgia contains, it's a compound word, and part of the word means ache. It means ache. Ache for a homecoming. It's really an aching, a longing to be home. A yearning to recapture something from the past. Maybe a feeling of security, a feeling of comfort, a feeling of of acceptance, that maybe for you feels a bit like a security blanket, In an adult world which is altogether less innocent and and, and far less secure feeling. It might be that nostalgia isn't your thing. You you don't really want to remember anything about the past. But maybe for you, it's a longing to have a family of your own. That's a powerful longing in people. Have a family of your own. Have people who you can love and who will love you. Someone You can be utterly significant in somebody else's eyes. And to enjoy the security and the intimacy and the acceptance that comes from your idealised vision of what a family is, of what family life could be. Or maybe for you, it's that you long for progression in life. You just want to be successful, you want to achieve, you you have a career you love, and your goal is to get to the top of that career. You want to climb the ladder and get to the top. Because you know how it makes you feel, how good it makes you feel when you achieve, and when you're successful, and when you have the admiration and the affirmation of others. Or maybe it's just that you long for that perfect holiday, a yearning for paradise, a yearning for beauty, a yearning for rest. What is this all about? Because I think that's something we all have. I think at times in our lives we all experience deep feelings of longing for something. So what is that all about? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, God has put eternity in our hearts. We were made for something else. We were made for eternity, but because of sin and because of separation from God, he's withheld from us the vision of that eternity. We can't see the eternity that we were made for. We can't quite grasp hold of it. And so we all live with a sense of restlessness in our lives. We all live with this sense of of longing, yearning for something that we can't quite grasp hold of. Because we were made for something different. We were made for paradise. We were made for glory. We were made for beauty. We were made to to live in complete and utter significance in God's eyes. We were made for complete security. We were made to have complete acceptance, complete intimacy. That's the blueprint that we were made for, complete dependence on God. But those things were all lost in the fall. Those things were lost when sin came in and, and we were separated from God. And so we are born, as a consequence, with those longings. We're born with a longing to get back to something. To have, to, we have deep yearnings, we have deep needs within us, and we're searching for something, but we just don't really know what, or where to find it, or what to do about it. And so we look in all sorts of places to try to find that ultimate uh, satisfaction, that ultimate fulfillment that we crave, to meet our deepest needs that we all have within us. So we look in things, we try things like careers, we, we look to things like just things, stuff, having having lots of stuff. We look in holidays, in, in alcohol, in sport, in shopping, in in sex, in pornography, in body image, in experiences, in leisure, in entertainment, in family, in friends, in adulterous affairs, in nostalgia. Which is understandable, really, that we look in all these places because we don't really know what to do. And it's kind of like we're constantly trying to dull the ache that's in us. It's like we're trying to constantly numb the pain. It's like if you're suffering toothache because of an abscess in your tooth. Your first priority is to numb that pain because nobody likes pain. But if the dentist or the doctor takes the same approach and all he seeks to do is, is numb the pain, they're not doing their job properly because their job is to identify the cause of the pain and treat that pain although it's very unpleasant can be a very helpful thing because of what it points us to it calls our attention to a problem it calls attention maybe to a disease to some problem to something that needs to be dealt with but if you just treat the pain if you just seek to anesthetize and numb the pain the cause is still there and it's festering and it's spreading and then when the anesthetic wears off whatever it is you've used to anesthetize yourself the pain is still there and actually it's stronger i think we know all this actually i think we know this to be true because we know from experience that we don't find the lasting satisfaction the lasting fulfillment that we crave in any of those things we know it from experience and the longing remains mike cosper puts it like this he says even though our experiences disappoint our longing for paradise endures it haunts us because Eden was real. We sense its loss as we grope through trial-filled days, continually reminded of the imperfection around us and within us. We're like second-generation exiles who never knew the world they lost, but who long for it nonetheless. The things that we, that we look to for satisfaction will always let us down in the end. They will always let us down. Nostalgia, in the end, just leaves you with the ache because you realise you can't go back there. In a sense, that's a time that's been lost. And even if you could go back, you realise that it probably wasn't as perfect as you remember it anyway. Or you maybe realise that family life, as great as family life is, family life will never deliver the perfect satisfaction that you're seeking, because your family will never live up to your idealised vision of what a family should be. When you get to the top of your career, the question is, the inevitable question is, what next? You get there, and you find that there's still the longing there. The longing remains. The richest man in the world is never as rich as he would like to be. You never do find perfect paradise and perfect rest on holiday. And even the very best holidays come to an end. You anticipate it for ages, you get on it, and it's done. It's gone. And the longing is still there. The new mobile phone, the new toy, whatever it might be, loses its appeal after a week. And you're looking for the next thing. Or the attempts to dull the pain through alcohol, through pornography, through sex. These things that promise great freedom actually lead to enslavement and addiction. And they leave you empty. And they bring destruction. Destroying families, destroying relationships, destroying your health. It's like it all turns to ashes in your hands. And Isaiah puts it like this. God speaking it in Isaiah says, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You can kind of hear the voice of an anguished parent here talking to their rebellious child who's turned against them. So why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to us? Do you not know how much we love you? Don't you know what we've done for you, what we've given you, what we've sacrificed for you? We, we just want the best for you. Why are you doing this? Why are you spending money on what's not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy I know the best way for you. Or in Jeremiah, God says, My people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. It's like God is saying, why would you turn away from, Why would you do that? Why would you settle for something which is not even second best? But this is the human condition. Almost everywhere we look, the grass is greener than where we stand currently. We drink at broken cisterns that leak, cannot hold water. We eat bread that does not satisfy. We long for all the wrong things in all the wrong places. We seek happiness. Everybody's after happiness. That's what we want. We just want to be happy. We strive to find happiness in the things of this world, and we never really find it. certainly not a happiness that lasts. But, you know, we're never told in the Bible to seek happiness. It doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Those who hunger and thirst for blessedness, as long as we're striving for happiness as our ultimate thing, as the number one thing, that's our goal, it will always, always elude us. It's like trying to kind of grab hold of a plume of smoke in the air. There's a fleeting glimpse, there's a moment, there's a taste, and then it's gone again. You just can't grasp it. Happiness always results, it's always a byproduct of seeking something else. C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for something different. The longing that we all experience from time to time in our hearts is the Spirit of God beckoning you to Himself, pointing you to Himself, pointing you to the solution to the problem. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for righteousness, for they will be filled, they will be the ones who are satisfied. So the question then, the natural question, is what is righteousness? What does it mean? What is this righteousness? Is it just goodness? You know, being a good person, having a good heart, having morality, having a moral compass. I don't think it can be that, because actually, those are things that everybody desires. Everyone desires some degree of righteousness. It's just a basic matter of self-esteem to have something to feel good about ourselves. Something good we can point to. Even thieves and criminals have a code of honour among themselves. So it can't be that. It's not talking about the kind of self-saving righteousness that is there to make us feel better about ourselves. It's not about hungering and thirsting after a partial or an imperfect righteousness or a humanly manufactured righteousness. This is about the perfect, all-consuming righteousness that comes from God. So one of the commentators, James Montgomery Boyce, he rephrases verse 6 to say, Oh, how happy is the man who knows enough not to be satisfied with any partial goodness with which to please God, who is not satisfied with any human goodness. He alone is happy who seeks for the divine righteousness. Because God will certainly provide it this is the righteousness that comes from God that first saves us and then continues to save us. That justifies us and sanctifies us. Justification describes your standing before God. Really it describes that moment of being born again. The moment of being saved. At first realising just how poor in spirit you are. When you first understand your desperate need of God and having him come into your life to rescue you, to redeem you, so you can be united with Christ, so you can be reconciled to God, having our sin paid for at the cross of Christ and his righteousness imputed to you, his righteousness transferred to you so you can be clean and acceptable and not guilty before God. And let me tell you, if you're not a Christian, that's what God does for you. This is what he will do for you when you realize it's time to stop relying on your own righteousness and you start putting your trust completely in him and in the cross of Christ. And actually, it's purely by his grace that this happens. But if he's calling you today, you can receive his righteousness today. If he's calling you, you can receive his righteousness. But this righteousness here is more than that. It certainly includes justification, but it's more than that. It's more than justification. It's more than just the moment of having your sin dealt with so that you are clean before God. It's also the continuous process of sanctification, of being transformed, of being made holy, of becoming more and more like Christ. It's the desire to be utterly free from the power of sin, to be free from the desire for sin, free from the idol of self, free from self-interest. It's the longing to be holy, to be More like Christ, to be like Christ, to be the person who exemplifies these beatitudes and who displays the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. In the knowledge that you're not there yet, none of us are there yet. But it's what your heart really wants. It's what your heart really craves, this perfect righteousness from God. That's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But actually I think here we can be even more specific because, this is, and this is where the context of the Beatitudes as a whole, and the context of the Sermon on the Mount is really, really important. So I think I've pointed out before that the Beatitudes are kind of bookended by this phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It comes in the first one and the last one, the beginning and the end. It's a literary device, not by accident, it's a literary device called an inclusio. And it means that these two phrases, these two verses, they're like two bits of bread in a sandwich, and the meaning is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven it doesn't just apply to the first and the last beatitude. It applies to all the ones in between as well. So there's a structure to these beatitudes, a deliberate structure. But then if you look even closer, you can divide these beatitudes into two groups of four. And if you have your Bibles open, do, do be looking with me. You can divide them into two groups of four, which both end with a reference to righteousness. Righteousness is repeated here. One... Um, One is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and then the other is being persecuted for righteousness, because of righteousness. So one group of Beatitudes leads to hungering, because righteousness is lacking, and the other group leads to persecution, because righteousness is abounding. So if you look at the first three Beatitudes, they're really expressions of emptiness. They're expressions of something lacking, and an acute awareness of that lack that is present in us. Being poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, and then that leading us into meekness, that realisation, as we heard this morning, of just how small you are before God. And then those naturally lead us into verse 6. Because out of, uh, out of the awareness of emptiness, the awareness of the lack of righteousness, should come a longing to be filled with that righteousness. It, it leads to the longing. It's produced by those first three steps. But then if you look at the next three Beatitudes which follow on from verse 6. They follow on from that satisfaction of being filled, filled with righteousness. We see now that the blessed person is someone who is overflowing with mercy, is pure in heart, and is not just peaceful, but is a peacemaker. And then that group, that second group of Beatitudes, ends again with a reference to righteousness. But this time, it's not a hunger for something that is lacking. It's a persecution for righteousness with which we are now overflowing because we have been filled. And so it seems that Jesus is really defining here what this righteousness from God will practically look like in our lives. And it looks like this. It looks like mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking. That's what it will look like. Actually, he illustrates this even more. Just a few verses later, in verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, they were religious leaders of the day. They, they, their righteousness was based on sticking to the letter of the law. You know, they were, they were very proud of it. They were very proud of their righteousness, but they were also renowned for it. This law-based righteousness. But Jesus then illustrates in the verses that follow what it looks like to exceed their righteousness. And he follows this structure. He basically says, the law says this. These guys follow this, but I tell you this. I call you to a higher standard. And so he says, for example, not only does the law say we mustn't commit murder... Not only must we not kill anyone, but more than that, I tell you, we mustn't foster anger against someone in our hearts because it amounts to the same thing. Instead, we should seek peace. Not only must we not commit adultery, but more than that, I tell you, you mustn't look at anyone lustfully because it's like committing adultery with them in your heart. Not only should we keep our oaths, but more than that, I tell you, you should be the kind of people that don't need to make an oath in order to be believed. Not only should we not poke two eyes out in retaliation for someone poking one of our eyes out. I tell you, more than that, you should be the kind of people who turn the other cheek and who seek to repay evil with good. Not only should we love our neighbor, that's easy. More than that, I tell you, you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You know, Jesus is making the same points because all of those points are to do with showing mercy and being radically pure of heart and making peace instead of retaliating. So I think those are the specifics of what we're talking about here this righteousness in this context as well as the kind of the wider righteousness of God. And we can see this is an impossible standard for us. It's absolutely impossible for us to live up to this apart from the power of the spirit. These are characteristics that are produced in you over time through receiving the righteousness of God. It's not through any self-righteousness. Now Jesus says to hunger and thirst for this righteousness. Hunger and thirst. That's pretty emphatic. I'm not great with hunger myself. Not, not that keen on, on hunger. So I remember New Frontiers in the UK used to do these um, prayer and fasting events up in Peterborough, which was three times a year, and we used to go up there. Um, so it's two days of some pretty intensive praying and worshipping, and, and also it was two days of fasting, and then, so on the second day, when you're feeling a bit lightheaded and a bit hungry, um, somebody would stand up the front of this big, massive, great hall and say, Right, we're gonna, I'm going to lead you in prayer now for our church plant in Turkey. And there's only one word I heard in that sentence <laughs> Turkey. Give me turkey, yes. Or somebody stands at the front and says, Right, guys. We're going to pray now and just see your prayers like this. It's like planting a stake in the ground. Steak! Oh, yes, please, I want some steak. My concentration levels were not great. I'm not great with hunger. But, you know, that's not real hunger. In fact, I doubt that many of us know, really know, what true hunger and true thirst is really like. But it implies Desperation. It implies desperation. Hungering and thirsting is not just a passing feeling or a passing desire. It is deep. It's profound. It hurts, and it continues until it's satisfied. As it says in the psalm, Psalm 42, As the deer pants for streams of water... So my soul longs for you, my God. The psalmist is desperate. He's trying to get across, I am desperate for you, God. I am absolutely desperate to know more of you, to have you closer, to have you in my life, to have you come to my rescue again. Desperation. And it's desperation that is needed. A desperation is fueled in us actually by the realization that we don't find the lasting satisfaction we're looking for in the things of the world. And that when we try to do that, it's just like stuffing sand and salt water in our mouth. It just increases the thirst. It increases the longing. And it's not enough to just be a bit hungry. The prodigal son, when he was hungry, he went and ate the pig's food. It was when he was starving. It was when he was desperate that he turned back to his father and found what he needed. He found salvation. And when we find that we're, actually, that we're not desperate for the righteousness of God in our lives. It's because we still think we have some righteousness of our own to get by on. Because we're not poor enough in spirit. We don't mourn enough over our sin. We're not meek. Actually, maybe we think that God's quite lucky to have us, really. But you know, you've only got to look, you've only got to read the biographies of some of the great missionaries of the past, people like Hudson Taylor C.T. Studd, Whitfield, Muller, these kind of guys to see someone who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Or you've just got to look at the Apostle Paul, who went through multiple shipwrecks and floggings and beatings and prisons and stonings. Or any of the great characters from the Bible, like Moses or Daniel or Joseph, any of these people, to see people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who are prepared to go through anything and to give up anything for the sake of righteousness, People who won't stand on their rights and seek to defend themselves. People who take Jesus at his word when he says, as we've already heard this morning, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So a question that we need to ask ourselves is, do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? What do I hunger and thirst for? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, or do you still hold on to a righteousness of your own? Finding satisfaction in your own abilities, your own achievements. Seeking to defend yourself, seeking to stand on your rights. Are you aware of your deep need for a saviour? And not on a one-off basis, but an ongoing, continuous basis. Not, I've got my ticket in and I'm okay now, but I I need a saviour every day of my life. Are you aware of that deep need? What is it you long for? What is it you yearn for or ache for? Is it righteousness? Or is it the things of this world? Do you actively seek that this world, there are many things in this world that are clearly opposed to God. Do you actively seek to avoid those things in your life? Or do you make room in your life for sin? Compartmentalizing the church person and the private person. I can say it because I've done it. (laughs) And I can also say that it only takes a little bit of mold to work its way through the whole loaf of bread. It only takes a little bit of yeast to work its way through the whole batch of dough. In other words, you can't compartmentalise your life like that. It doesn't work. Are you making room in your life for sin? Do you seek to avoid in your life things that may be good in themselves... But actually, you know full well, they dull your hunger. They take the edge off your spiritual appetite. Maybe because of the disproportionate amount of time you give to them or the energy you give to them. And I'm deliberately not being specific here because I don't want to label something as bad, which for you might be fine. It's about knowing ourselves. It's about being aware of our own weaknesses, our own limitations, our own temptations. But basically, do you need to repent of taking good things and turning them into ultimate things? of taking good things and elevating them to a place above God in your life. We need to be ruthless about some of this stuff, what we avoid in our lives. But actually, we can be positive here as well. So another question to, to ask. Do you actively put yourself in the way of getting hold of righteousness? Do you seek opportunities for that? Like Bartimaeus, whose story is told in the Gospels. Blind man who knows he can't heal himself, but he does everything he can to put himself in Jesus' path everything he can, and he gets healed. Do you take every opportunity to put yourself in the way of righteousness, of getting hold of righteousness through the Bible, through prayer? And I would very much include in that the corporate gathering of God's people. Being here among others who also have this righteousness but also are aware of their need for more, are desperate for more of this righteousness. You need to, we need to be with each other. Through small groups, through Sunday gatherings, we need to be with each other. Do you seek every opportunity for fellowship with God's people? To do whatever you can to be here, and for the whole time, for the, for the whole hour and a half that we're together? Or do you sometimes find yourself thinking, you know what, I, I think I'll just, I I just give it a miss this week. I, you know what, God doesn't want me to be legalistic about this. You're right, he doesn't want you to be legalistic about it, but you might be thinking about it in the wrong way. I remember when I came back from France, having been in France for a year, uh, very far, part of my university course, feeling very far from God, coming here and feeling very out of place, and it shocked me to the core. But my response was not, well, I'm not going to come here anymore. My response was to see, there's something I've lost here. I need to get it back, and this is where I'll find it. So I'm going to be here whenever I can. I'm going to raise my hands in worship, even though I don't really feel like it, not in a hypocritical way, but out of desperation, that I need to know God again. I I need him in my life. The corporate gathering of God's people, you can't replace it. Don't miss it. Don't ever miss it, If if you can help it. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or as Lloyd-Jones puts it, can I say quite honestly and truly that I desire above everything else in this world truly to know God and to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to be rid of self in every shape and form and to live only and always and entirely to his glory and to his honour. Can we say that? Because there's a wonderful promise attached to this particular beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's a promise. They will be filled. Filled with what? You'll be filled with the righteousness of God. In fact, you'll be filled with Christ himself. Jesus later on says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled with Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. Will be filled with with righteousness of God through the Holy Spirit. And it is entirely the gift of God. You can't fill yourself with righteousness. Well, how does it work? How does this filling work? Well, I think there's an immediate filling that happens. When you truly desire God and his righteousness, he fills you immediately and how do we know that well i think you just become more aware of him you become more aware of his presence you become more aware of your need for him you get closer to him something changes in your heart you you find your living in assurance of your salvation in the knowledge that the power of sin no no longer has any power over you there is an immediate feeling that happens but there's also an ongoing feeling a continuing process of being delivered from the power of sin, of being transformed from one degree of glory to another, of becoming more and more like him. And you know there's a paradox here, which is that the more you are filled, the more you hunger and thirst. The more you are filled, the more you hunger and thirst, because the more aware you become of your deep need for him. Charles Spurgeon said, Lord, when I get what you give me of your grace... Then I feel a new craving that seeks after higher things. My soul enlarges by what it feeds on, and then it cries, give me still more, 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 give me still more. The the more you are filled, the more you hunger and thirst. But then, of course, in the end, ultimately, this promise is fulfilled perfectly and absolutely in eternity. There is a day coming when, if you are born again, you will stand before God blameless, utterly blameless, utterly perfect. When you will be filled, you will be satisfied. That longing, the ache, will have gone forever, forever, for eternity, as you are completely filled with the perfect righteousness that comes from Christ. So what does your heart long for? What sort of things do you yearn for? Because if it's anything other than righteousness, it will lead to emptiness. The restlessness that we all have in our hearts, the longing that we all have in our hearts is the call of God to us. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, he's calling you. And so respond to him. Whether he's calling you for the first time, calling you from darkness into light, calling you from one kingdom into another, or whether he's calling as a parent does to a wayward child, you know, you have known me. So why are you turning away from me? You've known me. Why do you eat bread that doesn't satisfy? Why do you drink at this broken cistern? I have so much better for you. That longing that you have in your heart, it's a longing for me, not for any of those other things. Turn your face towards me. We long for a world that was lost. We long for a paradise that was lost. And we live now in a world that we know is not right. Again, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, I would contend that everybody knows there is something very wrong with this world. It is not as it should be. There is nothing in this world that is left untainted, uncorrupted by sin. We know things are not as they should be, but in Christ, there is hope again for paradise. In him, we can all go back. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. If we could just lift our eyes, to see something of the wonder, something of the glory, of the righteousness of Christ, there would be nothing else in this world that we would want more. Everything would pale into insignificance in comparison. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us us be desperate for more of him. And if you're not, ask him to make you more desperate for him. And let us be those who can say along with the Apostle Paul, I consider Everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We need to be desperate for him and for his righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled.